verse 16. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter. You can have a seat. So I'd like to uh, begin this evening by introducing you to Sarah. I met her when I was 22 years old, and she was a senior at NYU. She grew up in Texas, some suburb just outside of Dallas, and had all these dreams about theater and the bright lights of Broadway, and then she got in. Got accepted to her dream school in her dream city and she arrived wide-eyed and full of dreams and began living toward that vision of her future. And she also found this church community that had equally begun widening her eyes to Jesus. And she got together with this one friend and the two of them had a simple plan. What if we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we just do a chapter a day, but we agree to take Jesus seriously, seriously enough to actually attempt living like he's living, to actually follow him, to do the stuff. And then that simple experiment began to mess up her life in the best possible ways. But it started here. Sarah just could not shake the fact that Jesus, in scene after scene, is sharing meals with the poor. And she almost never was. How could she call herself a disciple of this rabbi if she's found a version of following him that avoids the very environments that he seems to be taking people to all the time? Do you see the disconnect there? So she made this simple decision that there was this group of houseless folks that were sitting on uh, the sidewalk in the same corner just by the NYU campus every day. And so she decided, instead of eating my lunch with my classmates in, in the dining hall, I'll just take my lunch and I'll sit with those people and get to know them. And she did. She learned their names and their stories and they learned hers. And they went from worlds apart to actual friends. And that turned out to be, for her, a slippery slope of the very best kind. So welcome to the Bridgetown Church Justice Summit. Now this is a really important weekend for us as a church. It's one where we are hoping to take a giant step forward toward Jesus and his kingdom, one that we hope to sow seed that will uh, grow in us toward where we're headed in the days to come. And it's one uh, where we hope not to shame, as talks on these topics can so often do, but to create hunger. St. Francis said, you put salt on our lips that we might thirst for thee. And that's what it's like to see Jesus anew. It creates thirst in us where we thought we were satisfied. And that's what I'm praying for this weekend is a bunch of salty lips and a new thirst in every life here who calls Bridgetown home. So you're gonna hear a whole lot from JT tomorrow, but I've got the honor of getting us started tonight. And I'm gonna give you a sweeping overview. Tonight is going to be like drinking from a fire hose. I'm gonna take you through the entire Bible, tracing the theme of God's heart for the poor. It's going to be way too much. 
But do not fear. Tomorrow, JT is gonna return to some of the places that I go, and he's gonna take us deeper and show us more. So up for tonight is the imperative of proximity, an often overlooked but undeniable biblical theme. And I'm gonna give you that theme in these five scenes. Exodus, Sadaka, Prophets, Jesus, and Church. And I should say right up front that I'm not even gonna try to make this sexy for you. I don't have a whole lot of like fun anecdotes and things like that woven in here. I am taking very seriously my responsibility to lay a firm biblical foundation that we can stand on when it comes to justice, mercy, and reconciliation in the days ahead. And that is what tonight is about. Are you in? Okay, let's go. Scene one, Exodus. Exodus chapter three, beginning in verse seven. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue. Now, two themes are captured in this famous uh, scene that begins the Exodus journey. The first theme is this, that God hears the cry of injustice. There's a really interesting detail right at the beginning of the Bible in the story of Cain and Abel, where Cain kills Abel. Now that is the first act of injustice in recorded human history. He kills Abel so that he won't have to deal with him anymore. Injustice, to to act unjustly, turns down the volume on the cries of the victims of injustice in the ears of people. But the voice of God turns on the story at that very moment with this interesting message. Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So injustice lowers the volume on the cry of the oppressed in human ears, but it amplifies the volume of the cry of the oppressed in the ear of God. God takes offense at injustice. It is a distortion of his image, the imago Dei that was breathed into people at the beginning. Here's the second observation. God chooses the marginalized. When we want to affect real change, we usually start with influential, prestigious, powerful people. When God wanted to affect the most real, the most overwhelming change, he chose, uh, he passed over all the more obvious candidates like Egypt, then Babylon, then Rome, and settled on a ragtag band of outcast slaves. And Exodus is just the beginning of a pattern that when God searches the globe to select a people, he picked these poor slaves in Egypt. And when Jesus handed the keys of the kingdom to the apostles, he had picked a mostly uh, poor members of an oppressed minority. And when God himself came in the flesh, he for our sakes became poor. Now, not all scholars are in complete agreement on this, but it's probable that the word Hebrew wasn't originally an ethnic designation, but originally referred to a social class of drifters and outcasts on the margins of ancient Near Eastern culture. And it was to those drifters that God says, chosen, mine. And it was through those drifters that God promised to make his appeal to the entire world. And as biblical history unfolds, God is stubborn in his subversive strategy. He seeks out the enslaved, the uneducated, the marginalized, and the easily dismissed as his chosen messengers. And as Exodus moves forward, N.T. Wright makes this phenomenal observation. He says that there are two liberation journeys in Exodus. The first is to get slavery out of Israel, or I'm sorry, to get Israel out of slavery. The second is to get slavery out of Israel. 
So the first is the miraculous plagues, or the miraculous deliverance, the 10 plagues, the parting seas. All that is about getting free. Next comes 10 commandments and laws and festivals. All of that is about staying free. And, and when it comes to staying free, we come to this in Exodus 13. Then Moses said to his people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. Now Passover, the feast that Jesus was eating at that last supper with his disciples, it gets detailed in the verses that follow this one. Later in Deuteronomy 5, this verse is repeated exactly as the, the motive for honoring the Sabbath. So what that means is that in the Hebrew tradition, spiritual formation, things like celebration, ceremony, and Sabbath are tied to justice from day one. Spiritual formation, personal practices like eating and drinking, praying and remembering is inseparable from justice, caring for the poor, befriending the marginalized. Hang on to that. That's a theme in, in uh, the way that Yahweh uh, reveals himself and refuses to let his people forget. Scene two, Sadaka. So as Old Testament history unfolds, God begins to reveal his character and two of the primary descriptors of Yahweh are righteousness and justice. Righteousness, God is revealing himself to be holy in his presence, trustworthy in his person, and in every way honorable. Justice, God is concerned about the systemic imbalances in his world, and he's preferentially active toward those who are victimized by those systems. He hears the growl of the hungry belly. He, he hears the dry throat of the thirsty. He draws near to the shivering body of the naked. God is inwardly righteous and outwardly justice. That's how it appears to us in English, at least. But the original Hebrew reveals something that is lost in our English translations, and that is the biblical Hebrew term for personal righteousness is sadaka. And the biblical Hebrew term for outward justice is, does anyone have a guess? Sadaka. Now that is so crucial. Because it means the, the historic understanding of devotion to God was to be righteous is to care for the poor. And to care for the poor is to be righteous. That is how central mercy was toward the or to the people of God. When I was a senior in high school, my church was uh, doing this middle school lock-in. And let's just be honest, of all the weird ideas Christians have had over the centuries, <laughs> lock-ins are at least top three, at least. What if we seal a group of youngsters up in our church overnight, give them a huge amount of sugar, and then make them sleep on the sanctuary floor? Genius. Let's do it again and again in cities across the country. So anyway, I, I somehow get sucked into volunteering as a chaperone, an 18-year-old chaperone to this event. And that night, there was this houseless guy who happened to come and sit leaning against the church building under the awning, just a, a little place to, to find some shelter. He is not approaching anyone. He's not doing anything. He's just resting there. And we saw him because we'd come out of the church building to load a bunch of kids into these 15 passenger vans for some midnight skating rink situation that we were going to. And so I'm standing there with my youth pastor as we talk to this man and offer him something to eat, which he gladly accepts. We learn his name, we, we try to help him. And then my youth pastor steps to the side and calls the lead pastor of the church, happens to do so on speakerphone, and I'm standing right there as the lead pastor tells him, kick him out, he's gotta go. That's all he said, he didn't ask a single question, it was that abrupt. And, 
And they talked for a minute or so after that, but I don't remember anything else that was said after that because my little 18-year-old mind couldn't quite process it. And we walked out together and I watched as this man was told, I'm so sorry, but you've gotta go. You cannot rest here. Here's a bag of chips in case you get hungry again later. And look, I get it. I mean, I know that there's liability and protection and there's parents trusting this institution with their children. It, it is complex and that's real and I get that. But I will never forget the wrestle that I fought internally at that skating rink because I was watching a bunch of kids whose phenomenal parents had homes with dinner tables and fridges full of food and those kids skated and laughed in this amazing community called the church but that man who for whatever reason didn't have any of those things was told by that same church, not here, you cannot find rest here tonight. Do you see the disconnect there? Jesus would say to the priests of his own day, you've obsessed over the small things, but you've forgotten the weightier matters. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Now, the Jewish law has all these sorts of rules about what you can and can't eat to remain ceremonially clean. And according to Leviticus 11, insects like gnats are off limits. They make you unclean. Fast forward to Jesus' day, wine was commonly kept in these huge jars, and it was rare, but it was possible that a gnat might be flying around and land in one of those jars. So it was common, particularly among sects like the Pharisees, to have a series of filters, kind of like a pour-over coffee filter that you would hold over your wine glass and you'd pour from the jar through the filter into the glass just so you could catch a gnat. So, you know, those stories where Jesus goes to sit at the table of the Pharisees, picture him sitting there at the table as the Pharisees are saying, just a minute, Jesus, we've got a great Merlot for you here. And they're pouring it through one of these filters. And then just to make sure, let's pour that one through a second filter. Oh, got one. Whew, can you imagine? And then they serve Jesus the, the wine glass. Uh, Leviticus 11 then goes on to say that eating the meat of a camel also makes you unclean. So gnats are the smallest thing that can make you unclean. Camels are the largest thing that can make you unclean. Jesus' critique was, by emphasizing the smallest things, you're missing the biggest things. You've strained out a gnat, but you've swallowed a camel. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So Jesus, not me, Jesus, says that justice, mercy, and faithfulness are more important. It is possible for you to fill your life with Christian minutia, so much so that you miss the more important matters. Now Jesus doesn't say that personal spirituality is inconsequential. He says do both, the latter and the former. So how you spend your money matters, and your unseen thoughts matter, and that gossipy story that you can't resist telling matters, and your proximity or lack thereof to the poor matters. UNICEF estimates that the total cost of providing basic social services to the world's 50 poorest developing countries, that's 85 million people receiving access to healthcare, clean water, and education, that that would be $2.2 billion a year, which at the time of this original estimate was less than the Western world spends annually on golf. Most of those wealthy countries claim Christianity as their primary religion. Is it possible 
that we're straining gnats and swallowing camels? And I don't ask that question with even a hint of assumption or accusation. The only reason I ask it is because Jesus seems to ask it. Sadaka, to be righteous, is to care for the poor. And to care for the poor is to be righteous. This brings us to scene three, prophets. Now we could be here all day because the Old Testament prophets have a lot to say about the inseparable nature of personal righteousness and outward social justice. So for the sake of brevity, let's just stick with these three, Amos, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. We'll begin with Amos chapter two. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground to deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. So Israel is rebuked right there in the same breath for sexual perversion and for neglecting the poor. God is holding both of these in the same category. And that is not an anomaly. The same thing was said through the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel uh, writes this. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. Now hold up. Sodom and Gomorrah is a tragically infamous story about the destruction of a city all the way back in Genesis 19. And almost everyone's heard of that story. Even if you've never cracked the Bible, almost everyone has some association come to their mind when they hear Sodom. And if asked why Sodom was destroyed, almost everyone will say it was the sexual perversity of the city. But that's just one side of the coin. Here's Ezekiel's take. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Isaiah chapter 10 echoes that exact same thing. So the destruction of Sodom was because of Sadaka, personal righteousness, and outward justice. Biblically, there is no separating these two. And Ezekiel does not say that Sodom, or that Sodom was oppressing the poor. This is a sin of passivity, not one of activity. It's not oppression, it's just failure to assist. It's turning a blind eye to the burden on the back of the needy amidst my own comfort, which makes me wonder if the sins of Sodom aren't as far off as we'd often like to think. In the eighth century BC, when Amos lived and spoke, the nation of Israel was experiencing the greatest period of prosperity uh, in history since the heyday of King Solomon. The economy was up, the market was on fire, people are making it, so to speak. Two centuries before this, God had divided up the promised land equally. But by the time Amos shows up on the scene, there were parts of town where people lived in large homes uh, and they were surrounded by other elites and there were other parts of town where the poor, modest homes were clustered together. Uh, among the ruins, archeologists have discovered today the, the high rises and housing projects of ancient Israel dating all the way back to the time of Amos. And it was precisely at that moment that Amos offered his stinging rebuke. And his message was identical to Ezekiel's. It's not that the rich are oppressing the poor. It's that the well-off are pouring into the temple for Sabbath, uh, but they never pour into the slums to feed the hungry. And there's a disconnect there named Sadaka. Now, it's important to note that Amos was not preaching to the culture. He wasn't condemning the government or talking to the city. He was talking to the temple, to the church. And in Old Testament spirituality, a devout life of God was summed up in three core practices, in fasting, 
prayer, and what they called almsgiving, or what we might commonly call today social justice. So private spirituality was expressed through prayer and fasting. Public spirituality was expressed through justice. Take that knowledge with you back to Amos 5. I think Eugene Peterson's paraphrase is the punchiest. He says, I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. You see, the people of Israel are fasting. They're devoted to God with the appetites of their lives. They are renouncing and resisting that they might tune their taste buds to the divine. They're people of prayer that are bowing their heads and giving thanks and raising their voices in worship, but justice is nowhere to be found. A spirituality of three practices was reduced to two. The temple had drifted into this mode of being where they wore all the right clothes and they attended the right services and they even lived the right personal disciplines but the society inside the temple was indistinguishable from the society outside the temple. The people of God were chopped up by the very same divisions that the people in the city were chopped up by. Amos is saying you have compartmentalized spirituality to some state of inner being, but you're not letting that touch your outer life. The, the, the streets where your feet walk and the plot of land where you build your home and your habits of consumption and your friend group. In Amos's day, the well-off slowly turned the promised land into a bunch of class enclaves with uppity neighborhoods and ghettos. And that lowered the volume on the cry of the oppressed in the ear of the well-off. It distanced the privilege from the needy, just like it does today, but it only raised the volume of the cry of the oppressed in the ear of God. So much so that Amos prophesied exile over the nation of Israel because they had forgotten about the poor amidst their own prosperity. It was not that the rich began to oppress the poor. It was only that they ordered their lives in such a way that it lowered the volume on the cry of the needy, but that only amplified the same cry to God. What do you think God hears when he listens to Portland? And are you close enough to hear it too? In the exile, Amos foretold, God raised up another prophet named Isaiah and his voice sounds eerily familiar. Most famously in Isaiah 58, the nation of Israel is called out for praying and fasting, but forgetting the poor all around them. A spirituality of three practices, again reduced to two. It's the same drum. It's just a new hand beating it. There are 200 distinct biblical references that ask us to take care of the poor. That works out to one out of every 10 Bible verses. So yes, it does seem that the poor are on God's mind. The prophetic message is all about a coming savior who will bring tzedakah, a kingdom that rules by righteousness and justice. The kingdom of God is freedom from anxiety, it's healing for my body, it's peace that surpasses understanding, and it is salvation for the lost. And the kingdom of God is the orphan and family, and the oppressed set free, and the poor dignified, and the down and out given a second, third, fourth, and fifth chance. How do you measure how you're doing in your faith? usually by some metrics of prayer or Bible reading or my recent moral decisions or the sense of inner peace that I carry with me. And 
That's because we're radical individualists in the most radically individual society that's ever existed on the globe in human history. And so most of us have these individual measuring sticks for how our faith is going. But many have summed up the prophetic message this way. The quality of your faith will be judged by the quality of justice in the land. And the quality of justice in the land will be judged by how the weakest and most vulnerable, vulnerable groups in society fared while you were alive. You see, the claim of the prophets is that our faith does not only rest on our personal private spirituality, but on how we stand with the marginalized. How do you measure the health of a church? Well, according to the prophets, that answer has to include by how their most underprivileged neighbors are doing. How healthy is Bridgetown Church? All this does raise an interesting question that maybe some of you are asking. Does God prefer the poor? I mean, does he favor the poor over the rich? Is God engaged in some kind of class warfare that the plenty are on the wrong side of? No, not at all. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that God loves the poor more than the rich. Abraham seems to have been relatively well off. Jesus chose Levi the tax collector to include in his inner circle. He looks at a rich young ruler and loves him. He hand-selected Zacchaeus the tax collector to go to his home for dinner. And Paul, a Pharisee, we can estimate was at least middle class and he led the better part of the church for New Testament history. Scripture does not teach that class is a determining factor in God's affection for people. But scripture does teach that God lifts up the poor and the disadvantaged. And subsequently, that God casts down the wealthy and the powerful in two circumstances. One, when they become wealthy by oppressing the poor, or two, when they fail to share their plenty with the needy. And when God came and lived among us, he did not soften the prophetic message, he amplified it. So in the Old Testament, one out of every 10 verses deals directly with how we care for the poor. In the Gospel of Luke, it goes up to one out of every six verses when Jesus himself is doing most of the teaching. Jesus did not say that God stands with the poor. Jesus said that God was in the poor, that how we treat the poor is how we treat God. So this brings us to scene four, Jesus. Now God's the author of the story. That means that he could have entered into the plot whenever he wanted as whoever he wanted. And he freely chose to come as a member of, a, of the peasant class of an oppressed mi minority during a genocide at the height of Roman oppression. He freely chose for his own life oppression, powerlessness, poverty, and the inability to choose a way out. God freely came as the poorest of the poor. 2 Corinthians 8, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. In other words, Jesus came to restore what we had separated, righteousness and justice. But he did not do so in power. Jesus confronts the perpetrator by becoming the victim. It's the most merciful kind of confrontation. It's the most redemptive form of justice. He's the Prince of Peace who's come as a child and the government will be on his shoulder, says Isaiah 9. So Jesus is a king who's come to establish a new government, one that will rule by sadaka, by righteousness and justice as the foundation of his throne. And Jesus began that earthly ministry by reading from the scroll of Isaiah in a Nazarene synagogue when he was 30 years old. This is the teaching text that Deidre read for us a moment ago. 
He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now the poor are the only group of people that are singled out by Jesus when he framed his mission. The good news is for everyone, but Jesus does seem particularly concerned that the poor know that it is for them. Now some try to nuance this by spiritualizing it, Like Jesus is opening the eyes of the spiritually blind. He's setting free the spiritually oppressed. He's proclaiming good news to the spiritually poor. And that interpretation does work in a number of places in the New Testament. This just isn't one of them. Because Jesus isn't speaking off the cuff here. He's reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 61. And if you go back and read that chapter in context, Isaiah is unquestionably referring to the physically blind, the socially oppressed, and the materially poor. And in fact, later on in Luke chapter seven, there's an equally clear reference where Jesus singles out poverty and material oppression. In Matthew chapter nine, Jesus quotes a different prophet. This time it's Hosea to describe his mission. And he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now mercy, understood biblically, is compassion plus empathy. The biblical word for compassion literally means to feel from the very bowels of your being. It's a response that comes from the gut, not just the head. It comes from entering into the suffering of another and feeling it for myself. Martin Luther King Jr. said our missionary efforts fail when they are based on pity rather than compassion. Now, pity is a feeling that is disconnected from relationship. Pity is the awakening of human emotion outside of proximity to human relationship. And Jesus and his kingdom are not fueled by pity, but by compassion. Jesus does not read sad articles or wince at statistics. He immerses himself in relationship with the people for whom those sad realities are inescapable. Why does your teacher eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You see, the Pharisees never were offended that Jesus might serve the marginalized or be a missionary on occasion to the outcast. They were offended that he would share a table with them that he would count them as family and welcome them as equals, that he would move past pity and into compassion. The missionary C.T. Studd writes, some wish to live within the sound of the church or the chapel bell. I wanna run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And the Pharisees, they are ringing the chapel bell. And Jesus showed up and opened something like a rescue shop. The most stunning revelation though, wasn't that how Jesus arrived, it wasn't what he taught, it wasn't even how he lived, it was how he suffered. The cross means something essential for who Jesus is. His eulogies found in Philippians 2 where the apostle Paul says, suffering servant. He was always that. God stripped himself of privilege and power and came as a man. In life, even when kings and rulers invited him over for dinner, he always seemed to prefer street meat among the bottom rung. In his death, he was executed like a common criminal right alongside a couple of other common criminals. The theologian Jürgen Moltmann says, the history of the world is the history of God's suffering. In the fall, he suffers from us. 
In Jesus, God suffers with us, and on the cross, God suffers for us. The cross did not tell us anything new about Jesus that we did not already know from his life. What it did, though, is it made explicit what was implicit. It punctuated what had been his 33-year message. Here is God, the suffering servant. But the cross also means something about where Jesus is found. This is Matthew 25. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And the opposite is also true. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did not do for me. Jesus is very clearly saying how we treat the poor is how we treat God. And he's not saying anything new. He was borrowing in this passage familiar sheeps and goats and blessing and cursing uh, images to talk about, uh, to tie these threads together that reach all the way back to Genesis. Jesus is saying what God's always been saying. Here's where you'll find me, in the eyes of the poor and needy in the company of the hurting, in the care of the handicapped, at the table of the hungry. Could it be that our more, most profound encounters with God are waiting behind the eyes of the poor? In Matthew 25, Jesus very directly says that how you treat the marginalized is how you treat me. That if you avoid the cries of the oppressed or ignore the needs of the poor or dismiss a story that doesn't fit your worldview or you check the box and then get back to your, old, to your own thing, that the stakes are this high, that's me. You're avoiding, ignoring, dismissing, and forgetting. But that's not the only thing he's saying. Jesus is also saying that the company of the marginalized is the place of encounter with God. That to enter into the company of the systemically impressed, mistreated, or forgotten is to walk right into the holy of holies. It is the meeting place. He is picking up from a long tradition that was handed on to him by the prophets to say that your worship and sacrifices are hollow if your life remains insulated from the margins. Don't you remember that the kingdom of God is about freedom from anxiety and it's about healing my body and peace that surpasses understanding and salvation for the lost and it's about the orphan finding a family and the poor being dignified and the down and out getting a second, third, fourth, and fifth chance. You see, when you behold the person of Jesus, when you really see him, the only response is worship. I mean, what a savior, right? What a savior, one who would come and live among us and come and live like this. But the greatest worship isn't uh, to cheer someone on. It's not applause, it's imitation, right? God is not dying that you and I would clap for him or ask for his autograph. The greatest worship isn't to be a fan, it's to be an imitator. Jesus is so much less interested in hearing his name chanted and so much more interested in you and me living like him in the world. It's that you and I would learn to that sharing really does produce more joy and blessing than storing up does and that we would fight for justice until that's all there is left and that we would give ourselves to others as completely as he has. How do you respond to a savior who's lived among us this extravagantly? You offer Jesus the highest kind of praise 
And that's imitation. And that is exactly what the early church did. So scene five, church, we're almost there. How are you guys doing? You're just looking at me like you're nicer on Sundays. In the Greco-Roman world where the early church took root, women were powerless and they were described as possessions in the legal documented language of the Roman Empire. The reason that Jesus spent so much of his time with prostitutes is because prostitution was so common in the first century world. Sex slavery, what we now call sex trafficking, was accepted as the norm and was legalized. The early Christian church was the first community in human history to call that injustice by its name and advocate for systemic change. The historian Kyle Harper concludes that you can trace uh, the spread of the church in the fifth century by tracing the legal ban of sexual slavery throughout the Roman Empire. Are you hearing that? The most reliable index For the early church's spread, historically speaking, is the spread of the legal overturning of oppression and injustice toward a powerless people. That sounds like good news for the poor, freedom for the captive, sight for the blind, and salvation for the lost. It sounds a lot like imitation. Fast forward just one generation after Jesus, in AD 70, the Jerusalem temple was destroyed by an enemy nation. So now Israel had no building for formal worship. A spirituality that had been built around a building has no building. And in that period, the Jewish rabbis had to reinvent a pathway for righteousness. They had to replace the whole sacrificial system uh, and, and they replaced it with a way for caring for the poor to be the way one made themselves right before God. So instead of taking your livestock to the temple for your greatest sacrifice, it was take your bread to the hungry And this is the way that you make yourself right before God. That is how central mercy was to the people of God after the time of Jesus. Hospitals are not the invention of doctors, they're the invention of Christians. Uh, They started in the church before they showed up in the city and that's why so many hospitals to this day have biblical names. Mount Zion, Mount Sinai, Emmanuel. Uh, Orphanages and the foster care system are terms that we know today because it's how the early church lived. They began taking in abandoned kids who were not their direct responsibility and that had never been done before. And so the world had to come up with words for it. Public schools were offered by the church until the government caught on. This was the first institution in history to believe that everyone had the right to an education. And what we call soup kitchens were first called by the early church the love feast. When the church got together at least weekly and everyone brought whatever they had to offer and they invited everyone, especially their neighbors who did not have bread of their own, to come together to eat. According to the According to the writings of Aristides in the year AD 125, if the hungry came to the early church and the church did not have food to offer them, the entire community would go on a joint fast until that hungry mouth could be fed. That was the life commonly practiced the first 100 years of the church after Jesus. In a word, it was tzedakah. Righteousness and justice living together in a single community. And it's really tempting for people like me especially to romanticize the past and to make much of the early church. So please hear me say this was not a perfect church. When you read the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is horrified by the class divisions that existed in the Corinthian church. When we look back, we don't find a perfect church. What we find though is a repentant church. In Galatians chapter two, Paul writes to the church these simple instructions. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. 
That word remember, that's the most frequent biblical command. We're commanded to remember more often than we're commanded to do anything else. And if you do a deep dive and you trace that word through biblical history all the way back to the beginning, you will go all the way back to Exodus 13, where we started tonight in scene one. Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the houses of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you from, out from this place. So every time you and I read remember in the scriptures, the Hebrew mind would run back to remember, I was poor, I was weak, I was a slave, I was a homeless refugee, and this God came after me. Remember the poor, meaning remember that while you were poor, while you were a slave to someone or something else, while you were buried underneath a poverty of spirit that you could not escape, while you were wandering without family and without hope, God welcomed you as his own. He mercifully took care of you. He brought you all the way in as family. Remember God. And as you do, you will find the proper love well up from within you to live like Jesus in this world. Not a perfect church. We can't be that but a repentant church. That's all God needs to work with. See, what I'm trying to show you is the unavoidable imperative of proximity. When Dorothy Day was asked, how do you live the gospel? She simply said, stay close to the poor. Proximity to the poor is not an optional expression of the gospel for a subset of Christians with a particular social leaning. It is an essential priority of Jesus that spills forth from the heart of God in every episode of the biblical drama, and it continues to today. But as time went by, the church became more institutionalized, and the potency of those early years I was talking about got watered down, and this radical commitment to justice, it was the first thing to go. Because the upper middle class folks who then joined this peasant movement had a remarkable ability to celebrate some scenes while ignoring others. A remarkable ability that we've maintained with a few revolutionary exceptions to this very day. You see, the sadaka that Jesus restored was quickly again separated. People seeking personal righteousness apart from outward justice. Jesus promised his presence could always be found by his people in two places, wherever two or more are gathered, like this, and among the poor. And there is no version of following this rabbi that does not find you regularly in both places, regularly among the believing community, and regularly among the poor. A version of discipleship that keeps you within your comfort zone, with, within your culture and your class and your preferences is a modern invention. It's a diluted version of the real thing and you do not find it anywhere on the pages of scripture. In other words, if Jesus can only disciple you within your comfort zone, Jesus can't disciple you. A version of discipleship that keeps you within your comfort zone should make you wonder if it's Jesus that you're walking behind. So what if the greatest threat to the kingdom of God is not some egregious sin pattern, but it's just a passive one? It's not your failure, it's just your comfort, it's just the safe walls that surround your comfortable spirituality. What if the kingdom comes primarily not within the walls of your comfort zone, but just on the other side of them? 35 million people statistically are leaving the Christian church every year today. 
If that trend continues over the next 30 years, over half a million people are gonna walk away from the church on our watch. They're gonna walk away from Jesus and the community that he founded as the hope of the world. But here's the crazy part. If that number was just cut in half, meaning if the church kept declining, but just at 50% of the same pace, that would constitute a historic global revival during our lifetime. We don't even have to stop the bleeding. We've just gotta put enough pressure on the wound to slow the bleeding. And history would write revival in the record books. In the sixth century, the Celtic church made it their mission to end slavery in their region. And so they took whatever resources they could and they pooled them together and they just began to buy the freedom of individual slaves. Many of those freed slaves then were ransomed by the church and became the priesthood that led the Celtic revival. The first theological school that was founded in England was made up primarily of freed slaves by the Celtic church. And I bring that up because I'm absolutely convinced that the Spirit is longing to breathe life back into the church. And I am equally convinced that people that will lead a revival like that are currently in prison or sleeping in homeless shelters or struggling in schools that the city has looked away from. Jackie Pollinger says, if you want to see revival, plant your church in the gutter. If it's revival you want, then put your life right next to need. Because revival is not well-attended, emotionally thrilling worship gatherings. Revival is Jesus at the table with tax collectors and sinners. Revival is the Celtic church buying freedom for slaves one by one. It is the hardened prisoner singing praise right here on the front row. It is the power of prophecy, not just at the front of the church, but in the soup kitchen. It's the orphan finding a home in your family or mine, and it's the lonely invited out to dinner after the worship gathering. Revival is not Christian hype. It is a wild, untamed garden bearing every variety of kingdom fruit. So I got to know Sarah, that NYU college student who moved to the big city with a Broadway dream, and then she invited me over for dinner but by this point, she was living in the South Bronx, which is statistically the poorest zip code in the US. And all that started with reading the Gospels and daring to take Jesus seriously to actually follow him. And then there was those, those lunches among the houseless in the West Village. And then she got to thinking, you know, Jesus is always ministering to prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners. What might be the modern day equivalents to those folks? And she did a bit of sociological research and she came up with prostitutes, drug dealers, and criminals. And then she did a bit more sociological research and she found the pocket of New York City where there was the highest concentration of those very people and then she moved there to live among them. And now the girl with the Broadway dream that brought her to the city was staying in the city for a kingdom dream. But don't you know how dangerous that is? I mean, there's gotta be uh, some other way to love the poor, right? Like, what if this or that were to happen to you? Why? Jesus. That's why. Jesus. So I show up to her house for dinner at this weekly family dinner that she hosts every Monday night. And we pass dishes and cheap bottles of wine around the table and it's so crowded that I'm sitting there with my plate in my lap and I met that night an elderly grandmother who'd lived on that block her entire life after her parents had immigrated to the city from Guatemala. 
And I met a pregnant teenager who was trying to figure out how to get her GED while also raising a newborn. And I met a formerly incarcerated young man who had been recently released and was trying to figure out how he might even begin piecing a life back together. And I met <clears throat> a single mother who spoke no English but who brought her children to that meal every week because it was the one table that they could get well-fed uh, and a warm meal. And there was kids running through the house playing pure chaos and we talked and we listened and we prayed and at the end of the night I remember fighting tears while I helped clear off the table. Because here it was, the table of Jesus. The table that Paul fought for in Corinth. The one that Jesus gave his life for in Jerusalem. The one that he broke bread around and poured wine around and said, remember me. And that night at that table, we all did. It was impossible to sit at that table that night and not remember Jesus. And a decade later, Sarah was still living on that same block, but she had moved out of that house a couple doors down because that house that I ate dinner at had become the offices for a house on Beekman, a nonprofit that she founded that companioned kids and does to this day from birth all the way to high school graduation with unheard of success and incredible stories. An 18-year-old girl moved to New York City chasing a dream of Broadway and stays in the same city chasing a dream of kingdom. All because she had the courage to look hard into the face of Jesus, to listen to his invitation and to say yes. So I wanna to close tonight by naming the great temptation that I believe that we as Bridgetown Church face in the days ahead. And it's this. Success by a standard other than Jesus. It's that we would, however subtly or well-intentioned, invent a version of discipleship that is successful in the eyes of the broader culture, celebrated by the broader church, but it avoids Jesus' inescapable call to proximity. And here's our vision for this weekend, that we would learn what it means to act justly to love mercy and to walk humbly, in the words of Micah. To act justly, that to act like Jesus includes justice. To walk humbly, we're gonna leave from here with the vision to literally walk the streets of our city in humble prayer and to love mercy, that as we do that, that the mercy of God would grow up within us and that would be expressed in this community that might be expressed in the world. And tonight, I want you to know this is not a rebuke. It's an invitation. Every time before I teach, before I even write notes of what I'll teach, I have this practice of just walking around the block out here and just saying, Jesus, what do you wanna to say to your people? And for this particular teaching, I, I heard him just say to me, I want them to know that this isn't a rebuke, it's an invitation because I really can be found among the poor and the marginalized. And look, of course, that's gonna feel awkward and forced at first, the way that it always feels awkward and forced at first with Jesus, the way it did when you first cracked open the Bible and had no idea where to start, or first lifted your hands in worship and felt like a fool, or first clasped your hands in prayer and wondered if you were just talking to yourself, or first were embraced in a moment of love and confession by another.
It always feels awkward and forced at first with Jesus, but then it becomes sacred places of encounter that we go to again and again and again. So here is the invitation of Jesus. Will you get to know me among the company of the poor and in the eyes of the marginalized? Will you come and find me where I promise to be? Will you let that for you become a sacred place of encounter? I've got so much to show you there, and it's all treasure.